0: You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation.
1: Greetings, classmates, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. We're just going to get right into it. We have a great just epitome of what it means to be a cult 80s film tonight. We're going to be talking about, first of all, i'd like to thank my grave digger friend here the only way he would agree to be on this episode is i had to agree not to insult the last jedi anymore so i'm not going to be doing that so once again welcome a grave digger trev 3k trev what's going on man
0: What's going on, Goat? School is out for summer, but class is just starting to get into session here. So
1: that's right. And everybody, you know me. I am the Goat, and I agreed to be on my own podcast as long as Trev didn't make fun of Justice League anymore. So
0: yeah. <laughs> I know we're both going to bite our tongue a lot tonight. I, think. I
1: know, I know. But we are rolling on with this film, The Class of 1984. It's uh, it's the first in a basically a trilogy, but really there's only two films. I would say they're legit. And the well even that even in the two films there's there's, there's really this film and then the sequel kind of stands alone. So we're Yeah,
0: well I mean when we we'll talk about that when we get to it, but sequel might even be quite the liberal term in yeah, this case.
1: <laughs> more, more just like a similar film made by the same director kind of. Mm. But anyway, we're going to get rolling here. This film has been released on DVD and on Blu-ray and there is a slight difference with a like a title card at the beginning of, like, a producer's film group or something. Uh, If you have the DVD, that card is not there. On the Blu-ray, it plays for, like, eight seconds. So we're just going to go ahead and skip. If you have the DVD, you will be on the one-second mark. If you have the Blu-ray, like I do, you will be on the nine-second mark. So I'm just because it's going to like go pretty quick. I'm just going to read this before we get it started. What we're starting on here is a screen that should say: Last year there was 280,000 incidents of violence by students against teachers and their classmates in American high schools. Unfortunately, this film is based on true events. Fortunately, very few schools are like Lincoln High yet. So that's what. The- that's what the very first thing what you'll see. Great opening text too. Yeah. So forget Star
0: Wars scrolls. This is the this is where it's at. Man. Well, you
1: know what I like about this too. This, this shit don't come on the screen all slow like Star Wars. It don't it don't keep you. The movie starts and all the text is on there. It
0: just, I'm just always a fan too of uh, like exploitation films that start with text like this, being like, yeah. "Hey, by the way, this is true, man." Yeah, this motherfucker. Is,
1: you. you could this, this is some stages. reefer
0: madness bullshit, you know.
1: Exactly. So mm-hmm. that's literally the first thing. That's in the movie. Grab your DVD remote here. Wake up your DVD players. I want to say one, two, three, go. And when I say go, hit play on your remote. You got your remote in hand, Trev? I do indeed. All right, everybody. One, two, three, go. All right. Here we go. Now, I'm going
0: to apologize right off the bat if uh, if there's a little more like volume than we normally have in this show. It's because I'm, for the first time ever, playing my movie with a little bit of volume on it because I am rocking off of the Anchor Bay DVD from years ago, which does not have subtitles.
1: Mm -mm. very unfortunate yeah yeah i have the subtitles on the blu-ray so i'll be good plus i
0: really wanted to hear this alice cooper song
1: yeah it's great there years ago uh me and corey g actually viewed this film for the vault of mysterious information we got into a huge debate about the class of 1984 theme song i love it by alice cooper corey tried to say it wasn't punk enough but i don't think it's trying to be punk it's no. it's meant to be a slow and soft song with some ominous lyrics warning you of what's about to come. It's not really trying to be all in your face, you know. The, like this isn't trying to even though there is punk rock music in it and the kid the gang is portrayed as some punks, it's not trying to be a punk rock music movie, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's got the great lyrics about when to kinda of starts out and I think this is intentionally. The song was written uh, by the great Lalo Schifrin, I think, and uh, they got Alice Cooper to sing it. And uh, yeah, it starts out with like some opening chords, sort of a synthesizer. Kind of reminds me of Clockwork Orange score, but then it goes into a more traditional kind of ballad song about you know when does a dream become a nightmare and you know all this. And it, it's it, and I don't know which came first, the script or the song, but there is some uh, you know the catchphrases of the movie, so to speak, are kind of in the the theme song mm-hmm. too, which I think that's always good when you kind of work that kind of level integration of the theme song in with the script, you know?
0: We just had one of those great moments that I love from films where during the opening montage, one of the shots was like in slow-mo for a little bit before yeah. going into regular, because you could tell they just didn't time it well in editing. Yes. So they had to fix it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, like basically, the movie starts with this new teacher at this school, Perry King, driving through the ghetto to get to the school he's teaching at. And he just sees people getting mugged on the streets. Like, you know, this is a bad neighborhood, so the school's going to be bad, too. And yeah, that slow motion uh, shot, it was like a teacher or something, a faculty sign, and they spray paint on I believe, to say faculty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Use it by Lalo Scheffren. Performed by Alice Cooper. And, uh, this this movie, um it's from the director. His name is Mark L. Lester. And uh he uh he got basically inspired by he went back to his old high school years later after he graduated. And when he went there it was like a real nice school, like no violence, and the school had completely turned bad and like gang infected and shit. So that's what that's what made him, you know, want to do this movie. And what's interesting was he um he had a uh, couple different guys go through passes on the script but i think the second or third pass was actually by tom holland
0: yeah it's interesting too because i don't know that this is probably just one of those contractual things or whatever but the the one that pops up in the opening credit says story by tom holland right although every other bit of information including lester's audio commentary in the documentary says that the story was always his and that holland was just one of the writers that came on and worked on the script so i don't know how holland got that uh credit added on but
1: yeah i don't know because when you watch the documentary that's on the blu-ray I think, yeah, that was the doc I watched the other night. Like, he he really is, like, specific about, you know, I came up with this, and then this guy brought this, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, he kind of does downplay the Tom Holland angle, which is funny because, you know, as we open up here, Perry King plays the new teacher. He meets, uh you know, a, a guy who's been teaching at the school for a while, knows what's up, uh, played by Roddy McDowell. And I just always figured that's where kind of Holland, you know, got the itch to put Roddy McDowell on Friday Night, like, a few years after this, but... According to what Lester says, I don't think Tom Holland was really even around during the filming of this. And it's kind of funny that, like, we're just now talking about, should we put school, in school, should we put metal detectors? And, like, literally the movie opens up with, like, them basically sneaking knives past well, the metal yeah, detectors school. yeah, this
0: is... Probably the most like socially relevant episode of Graveyard we've ever sadly done. Sadly, it is. Like, sadly, <laughs> it is. Right? That's, and I mean, this movie just recently, I'm sure you saw too, with some recent yeah. events, yeah. I suddenly saw this movie being referenced a lot online with a lot of pictures being posted of a particular scene coming up later but uh i'm sure we'll talk about it when we get there but lester even on the commentary in the documentary well we'll, if if you want to know how much this film is like prescient and how much it kind of foresaw what was to come just ask mark lester he'll tell you all about it because he's very proud of himself oh yeah (laughs) uh, (laughs) but he's not he's not wrong you know he's but i mean it is that kind of thing of um you know might go a little overboard i don't know if it ever got quite as bad as he seems to think it did but he definitely saw some things coming in terms of school violence and, and guns in school and stuff like that.
1: Well, the thing I think is really interesting is um, there definitely is like a security aspect to the school, uh, like surveillance and stuff that, which I was surprised cause I know this, I mean, this wasn't commonplace then, but you constantly have the, um, the principal watching like these closed circuit monitors or whatever. And then like, you really have to look though, like there's not like a lot of ominous shots of like cameras, spanning the hallways or anything like they kind of put these fakey like multi-directional cameras hanging from the ceiling and like that's really the only futuristic touch that they put on this movie is the cameras in the hallway, but they never really, like, like you, you kind of have to go out of your way to notice them, or else you might just think they were, like, fire sprinklers or something.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that, too, because I, I. it took me, like, actually quite a while to see this movie. I didn't see it really early on when I was a kid. I um, just kind of came to it later in life, and I always thought it was, like, a futuristic movie. Now I clearly know I was just confusing it with the sequel. Right. But something about the title and something about, like, the cover image of them, the way they were dressed, the punk gang, I just thought it was, like, kind of a... A Mad Max ish kind of film, but right. I forgot that all '80s movie punks dressed like that, <laughs> and that's yeah. actually uh, I mean, I'm going to talk about that a lot during this movie because one of my favorite things in movies, and especially '80 movies, is '80s punks,
1: oh,
0: and man. uh, and this movie, in terms of like you know anything else, Lester was pressing about, you can say it still falls into that old trope that I love of clearly an old man who's just afraid of the youth of today, you know, yeah. making a movie about how horrible teenagers are, and uh, that depiction of of punks and punk rockers that was prevalent in 80s films just always tickles me
1: yeah like here we have the teacher mr norris played by Perry king he comes in and it's kind of like your typical like hijinks classroom like spitballs flying everywhere some kids are they're getting bullied but it's not like brutal bullying like it looks more just like like they're playing like whatever keep away with some kids lunch but then he starts realizing, like, you know, that there's a handful of kids that are kind of doing all the like the shit stirring in this room, you know. Mm-hmm. But we got to get into uh, a little bit here of the casting. Uh, they showed like kind of like the dweeb, not even the nerd, but like the dweeb of the school. They showed him briefly. It was played by Michael J. Fox.
0: Mm-hmm. Michael Fox, as he's credited yeah, yeah,
1: Michael Fox. And I heard the story that he was, like, so broke. Like, this was this was actually shot in Canada. But the way some of the cast makes it sound like, I don't know, there's, like, a lot of conflicting things, whether he was or wasn't already shooting Family Ties at the time. I mean, if he was, it was, it must have been, like, very early in the process. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he looks totally different. Like, he's a little pudgier. I mean, Michael J. Fox is always short, but he looks even shorter in this movie. And, like, well, I mean,
0: he's really young here, too, yeah. so...
1: Just to describe the gang, you have, like, a big kind of overweight guy who's, like, the brute. Then you kind of have, like, almost like a skinny jock-type guy who really does all the, the majority of, like, the beatings and stuff. Then mm-hmm. you have, like, kind of like a sexy punk girl. And then you have, like, a guy who's just a complete, like, Sid Vicious-type heroin junkie. Yeah, like a burnout, yeah. Yeah, and then you have the leader, Stagman, who really is, like, he dresses in, like... I don't even think Stigman dresses punk as much as he. No, dresses he's got kind of like
0: more new wave. New wave, right? yeah, because his clothes
1: yeah. are like too nice. Whereas everybody else is like got shit held together by safety pins.
0: Let's I mean on the cover, you probably know the, the famous cover or poster image I'm talking about. They even yeah. tried to, they put like a like, like metal studs. spikes on his shoulder yeah. pads and stuff, which he does not have, but trying to make it look a little bit more uh, Mad Max ish or. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they put like kind of the jock guy having like a big rainbow mohawk that he never had mm-hmm. either. Yeah, interesting. But I guess that's how you gotta sell it, you know, if you have a low budget movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so basically the teacher just tried to call roll call, and the bullies weren't supposed to be, or at least the majority of them weren't supposed to be in the class, so he kicked them out.
0: Yeah, Stegman was, but they just the the rest of them were just his gang, and they follow him everywhere.
1: Which that seems like very lame as a gang. Like you just gotta follow one guy around all the time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, can we just go to his classes? Like, yeah. wow, what a great, uh, what a great day!
1: Now, I will say, even though this is supposed to be a very grimy, spray painted uh, school, like, like you do have to notice. I think there's a little bit of like casting in it because throughout this movie, you there's plenty of um, large chested young women in tight shirts who walk by the camera. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. <laughs>
0: What I like about this scene, though, is so when I, I've been showing uh, recently, I've been showing people the sequel because I just fell in love with the sequel and I've been kind of introducing that. And I, and like you said it's a standalone, so you can just kind of show them that. And then I often tell them how, yeah, well, actually, this is kind of a sequel to another movie class of 1984, but you wouldn't believe it because that one's so much more grounded. Uh-huh. And then you think about this, this film gets kind of ridiculous and it's not necessarily amazingly grounded. But what I do like here is that you see, you know, once those kids are out of the class, This isn't a school that's been completely taken over by violence or anything. There really is just kind of a bad element to the school. Yeah. And a lot of these kids are pretty normal and are just trying to look with everything. They like sticks. Uh, judging by that one kid's shirt back there
1: yeah not uh, everybody's like super edgy in the school
0: yeah so it's not like you know the the common cliche after this which even the sequel would take part in is the schools would just be completely out of control yeah and here it's more just like no there's just a bad element kind of infesting it but everyone's really just trying to get along to go along here
1: yeah i mean as far as like what's really like the school is just like literally every inch of the school they covered in graffiti for this movie which i'm shocked like I'm surprised they had the budget to clean all this shit up afterwards. Like, Oh, did
0: you do you know the story about that? No, uh, because
1: no, no, I didn't. Please they, tell the me graffitied... about
0: it the graffiti because they filmed this at a school over the summer obviously Mm -hmm. and the graffiti did not come off as well as they thought it would so when the school came back for the fall a lot of the graffiti was still visible and the school was pretty upset about it and they had to come back and like spend more time taking it off because for the first few days kids were coming to school with all this like horrible graffiti all over the walls
1: it's everywhere dude like it's insanely everywhere you know what i mean like the whole school looks like a toilet But yeah, like, you never really see that the school's bad except for this gang. And then, like, you see this one um, black kid selling drugs who turns out he's in a gang as well. But other than those two gangs, you never really get the feeling that everybody's doing bad shit in the school. You have, like, the thing, you know, they're they're beating this guy up because they're selling drugs on their turf and all that.
0: There's some. I, sometimes I just like to look around at the graffiti because there's some interesting yeah. graffiti. Like there in the background, we see one that says uh, "Liberate Armenia."
1: Yeah. You know, see so that. a
0: political statement, and then uh, also just Sabu, which I like to imagine yeah. Sabu from ECW <laughs> just came in. And...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Zarky. Another film that is insanely graffitied in the same vein is, uh, but but it takes it place at a place that was already closed down was Dead End Drive-In. Oh, yeah, Dead and Driving's awesome. Yeah, I actually just watched it, like, a week ago.
0: Brian Trenchard-Smith.
1: I know. Yeah.
0: yeah, That's probably good, the fact that we just mentioned him, probably a good time to mention Mark Lester, because if anyone recognizes that name but isn't exactly sure, it's because if you're like us, you probably watched Commando 300 times as a kid. And Mark Lester is also the director of that film.
1: Yeah, which I think he had to have kind of get leapfrogged Because of the success of this movie. Because what happened with this movie was, um, believe it or not, like, it wasn't that the distributors thought this movie was bad. They thought it was too shocking. So they Mm -hmm. didn't want to put it out. So, like, the story that Mark Lester tells was um, there was, uh, like, basically everybody passed on because they thought it was going to get, like, an NC-17 and all this shit. And they also th- they also thought like the actual theaters wouldn't want to play it cuz it'd be too much of a risk cuz I don't know if you remember just to put the time period in context too like this movie's called Class of 1984 but it actually uh, released in the year 1982 mm-hmm. so it was still the early 80s and there was a lot of um problems and gang problems when they did the warriors which i think was like 79 or 80 somewhere yeah. around there
0: well and this was clearly a movie to be shown in like grindhouse kind of exploitation yeah. theaters too and this was especially in the early 80s was when those were getting really dangerous to go to in like right. places like new york and you really were taking your like kind of life in your own hands if you wanted to go see a film at those theaters so 42nd but, street was not the place to be for safety or for protecting no, your moment you know no, not
1: at all so basically the way Mark Lester told it, it was Warner Brothers was like, listen, we like the movie, we'll put the movie out, but you got to have the theaters to commit to show it because like, you know, like, like we just don't think they're going to show it because all the problems that could happen. So he went to a guy who owned, uh, booked, uh, like a huge, uh, like, like, uh, maybe like the way he told it was like about a third of the theaters, in the country at the time and i'm blanking on the on the guy's name it, i can't remember if it was the guy who ran like united artists theaters or maybe it was another theater chain but basically he, he screened it for the guy in the guy's basement the guy was rich you know he had a screening room and the guy said great you know like let's do it and and the guy was like and, you know mark lester was like okay you know warner that's great you know if i can get like a contract then i can show it to warner brothers and be like, you know, to show them that hey, we can put the movie out. And the guy said, "Are you crazy? Like, what? You don't need Warner Brothers. Like, I'm booking the movie with you right now." And and Mark Lester was like, "Okay, like, when are we going to do this?" And the guy was like, "I want it in theaters in three weeks." So they kind of mm-hmm. did like a platform release. I think they did New York first, and they said it was just it did it made tons of money. So Mark Lester literally he kind of became the distributor as well. Like he, like I think he made a lot of money on this movie, you know. Like yeah, whatever yeah,
0: this is what he did do really well financially.
1: Yeah, so I think that's definitely what you know leapfrogged his uh, career and all that because he had done a couple things before this, but nothing that was really. Yeah, no,
0: well, he followed this up with Firestarter. The uh, right, he has a really good run in a uh, in the that time period because I mean fire. Well, I mean Firestar is not great, but it's an interesting film, and I then you have Commando, did. which. Which oh, yeah. is great. Oh, yeah. And then he follows yeah. it with Armed at Dangerous, which is a really good comedy. Yeah, you know?
1: actually. Like, like I think, I mean, he's definitely in the B-movie realm, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think he, as far as the, those type of guys for, like, the early to mid-'80s, I think he's he pretty versatile as a director.
0: Well, and I just saw someone on Twitter, it might have been Elric Kane or somebody, like, maybe he, was, he retweeted it. But making the point of guys like, you know, Mark Lester kind of falls into that category of guys like Jack Hill and, and directors like that who are kind of B-directors or rb directors but kind of have actually have a a, like a a concept of how to flow action and everything that rivals like the bigger directors they just never got that break you know
1: right yeah it was funny that when the teacher came out because you know he got into the altercation with the gang he came out after his first day at the school and his car was all graffiti spray painted and he came home and he told his wife can you believe i had to pay 40 dollars to get this graffiti removed from the car like what body shop has taken that much graffiti off for $40, even in 1982 dollars? I want to know.
0: Now, have you seen any of Lester's earlier exploitation films, like Truck Stop Women or Bobby Joe and the Outlaw?
1: No, I had. I just, basically, the only thing I know about him was just him, like, basically barely mentioning them on the documentary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll actually get to see a little bit of Bobby Joe and the Outlaw later uh, in this movie. Um that's a oh, great. That, tip. that
1: was the movie Stegman's watching on the TV. Yeah, with
0: yeah. Linda Carter. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was wondering, and I thought that was Linda Carter. That's Primarily
0: known for like a lengthy nude scene with Linda Carter.
1: Okay. Yeah, I've always heard about that movie. I just didn't know the title or that you know who made it. Now, I I think this right here is kind of wouldn't you agree? Is kind of maybe the most Clockwork Orange that this movie tries to get with the fight between, uh, the gang of black kids. I can't remember if they had a. Well, actually, none of the gangs have gang names in this from what i remember no yeah, yeah. but yeah they get retribution for stagman and those guys beating up you know one of their gang members so i like i find this kind of interesting i guess it was just a way to wrap up that scene but the cops come like right away for this this gang brawl that's like underneath the like basically a freeway <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who called them how they get there that fast?
0: i think that scene too is kind of uh You know, the scene we're just talking about, why that scene's in there. The Clockwork Orange influence, for sure. Lester said that's probably his favorite film. And then I think also, like you said, this is also coming off of The Warriors. Um, Yeah. What year was The Wanderers? Because I feel like maybe even, you know.
1: I could be wrong, but I want to say that was like 81. So that was like. Yeah. So
0: again, like I think he's probably trying like those like, oh, movies about gangs fighting are popular. I better have a scene of that.
1: Yeah, because the rest of the movie now, we're only, like, you know, about 15 minutes in the movie. The rest of the movie is all pretty much the gang focus, and now just on the teacher, like, you don't get too much. There is one scene where you kind of see how their business runs at this punk club that they go to, but other than that, it's mostly them fighting with the uh, teacher.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, like, because they really do target him from this point on. You wonder, is this the first time an adult has, like, stood up to them even, you know, because yeah. all they did was basically kick them out of one class, and it's like, man, they really took it hard, because
1: it's just yeah. war now. Like now, they basically roll up, and it does kind of start as pranks. Like first, they spray paint his car. And now they they go in front of his house, and him and his wife have to be coming home from dinner or something, and uh, they they spray uh, basically with a water gun. They pull up and they spray uh, fake blood in his eyes.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, so I don't—that's never said in the film what city this is taking place in. But right. like I said, it was filmed in Toronto, mm-hmm. and we just saw them driving down Yonge Street, which is like kind of the main street of Toronto, which is very much a uh, forty-second street-ish kind of street i don't know what it's like now but i mean i went there in the early 2000s and that's kind of the closest i feel i'll ever get to getting to walk down the old school 42nd street because it still had that look with like the really? bright marquees and kind of like still that kind of slightly seedy kind of feel um so everything it looks like everything it looks like here in the film is still how it looks or it's or still how it looked when i was there and i, I just remember kind of kind of loving it because it just uh, i always love cities that look like that in films
1: yeah i went to toronto my only real canadian trip i went to toronto like 91 i was pretty young to see all baseball all-star game up there Mm -hmm. and toronto's i definitely i think in a way toronto kind of looks better on film than new york does in a lot of movies because it it kind of has like somewhat of a new york feel like it's a huge city like it's impressive how big it is but there's just something about it the architecture like it's similar but it's just slightly different but yeah, like, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about
0: uh, that band teenage head uh still uh, playing today still wow. a active band
1: yeah the the girl who plays the uh the punk girl in the gang she said she didn't want to be in that slam dancing scene because mm-hmm. the real punk girls like the extras like they were out to get her or whatever so like she really went out yeah really to so be in those there. were
0: all because all those extras were people they just found it like a real club like that and they just told them really just go wild and they yeah. said like the, the guy actors got into it like timothy van patten and them like they they loved it but i can see her being like Whoa, what yeah. am i doing here
1: <laughs> yeah because i guess i guess apparently because you know her her clothing was you know designed by the movie or whatever is a little more stylized than what the mm-hmm. punk girls especially with the color she said like a lot of the real punk girls just wore black and white at the time period and she said like they were out to get her like pretty much calling her a poser you know which which is ridiculous because she's actually just an actress she in real life she was nowhere near this type of you know scene or whatever but i think definitely if you watch like a lot of the uh sex pistols documentaries and like see what like the girls were dressing like uh in like the late 70s in England like around the punk scene there like especially this girl with like this kind of weird mohawk beehive like like a lot of the fashion reminds me of that, that the girls have.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I have this, like I said earlier, I, I have this obsession with movies of this time that would depict punks. And you'd look at it, and sometimes you really laugh and you think it's really extreme. And then sometimes you will go watch something like The Filth and the Fury or whatever, and you see, like, well, no, there actually were people that were taking it that far. Yeah. I don't think they were the the majority. You know, uh-huh. I think they were usually the exception to the rule, or some people would go really outlandish with the, the outfits. And then the people who make these movies just thought that that's what all punks looked like. Right. And they would just kind of push the boundaries of it but uh but yeah certainly there certainly were people wearing you know outfits like this and doing that kind of face makeup and stuff
1: yeah and it's funny too because like i read a lot of like when was this would have been late 90s around 98 i got really in the sex pistols um you know like a little bit after their reunion tour and stuff and still in the
0: sex pistols uh never buy the bullocks here comes sex pistols is my favorite album of all time
1: really that's interesting Yeah, but like I read a lot of biographies and read a lot of, you know, saw a lot of documentary films and whatnot. It's kind of funny how small that scene actually was, but how mm-hmm. much the style really. Because when you really watch those things, a lot of times it's like the same roughly 40 people from the scene getting interviewed over and over and, and yeah. sort of showing and, up in all and the old 35
0: films. of those people went on to film their own punk bands.
1: Exactly. So here's what I was talking about the punk gang. We kind of see a little bit of their business in this like upper room at the punk club. And, like, there's a girl that wants to come work for them, which pretty much means prostituting or whatever. So she strips down naked. And it's kind of more the exploitation uh, feel, mm. this girl coming in. And I thought it was interesting because the girl who's actually in the punk gang, she's not, like, anybody's girlfriend. They, like, none of the guys try to have sex with her, like, nothing. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Cause,
0: in fact, she seems quite turned on by the girl.
1: Right, which yeah. mean, that probably tells you what's going on. But I thought that was interesting that... They went so far to show that the girl in the gang was kind of an equal to the guys, you know?
0: Yeah, I like that, too. Um, I really like. wish there were more scenes in that club or more yeah. of that depicting segment as kind of this like godfather-esque character in this, in this community.
1: And that's pretty much what Lester said Like why he did that scene, was they had to show some type of, you know, really... Where their power came from and how they. Well, I know. I also
0: said that there was like an old film from the '40s or something called like High School Godfather or right, something, yeah. and he was trying to pay homage to that of the idea of like a, a delinquent who's kind of controlling the drug trade in in the school.
1: So, I think, and, and here's the thing: I was like you, Trev. I came to this movie late, and I came to it after seeing the sequel. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, the first time I saw this movie... Because I never saw this movie like on VHS sitting in a rental store or anything. So the first time I saw this movie was on regular TV on a Sunday afternoon and edited it. And I knew about the movie because I had had Fangory magazines that talked about when Class of 1999 came out and referenced this movie. So when I caught it on TV, I knew exactly what it was. And I was really disappointed in it. But that was because I was watching the Censor version. It wasn't mm-hmm. until years later... And I can't remember exactly when if it was when the Anchor Bay DVD came out or somewhere else. I either rented it or saw like the legit version on cable, and I got into it a little more. And every time I watched, it, I got more and more. And I gotta say, for me, the thing that really makes this movie good is is Perry King as the teacher. Like I think he does such a good job that he grounds it into being some legit drama and not just silly punk hijinks you know what i mean
0: i think but i think i agree with you i think for me it is a two-hander i think it's Perry king and i think it is timothy van patten who i think also does a really good job in this film playing like you know you can look at him and say he's like the more cliched kind of over-the-top character but then this scene is the great subversion of it um right. I love this and scene. i do want to say like in terms of story uh mr norris does make a strategic mistake here i believe which you can kind of say the rest yeah. of the film really does fall onto him because here we re- here it's revealed that for all his bluster and everything, Stegman. Because uh, we haven't even mentioned Norris is the music teacher, uh, right? And and he's putting together like a, a band to compete in like the regionals for all the high schools in the area, and we find out that Stegman is actually a piano prodigy mm-hmm. uh, who's showing off his skills at this point. And what you realize in this scene is because you they saw him kind of hovering at the door listening, and then you know kind of actually walking in and wanting to be there. Stegman really does want to be part of this. Like right. he wants to the band and norris just flat out tells him no now because of the early confrontation i was just thinking Whoops, that's not what you do instead you say yeah you can but while you're here you'll just have to follow some rules yeah but by just instantly dismissing him he does kind of set off everything that follows
1: well to be fair i think it's both though because stegman it was going to be his way or no way because literally perry king's kind of leaning in and he's saying you know he like he takes the interest in him and i'll be like wow like that's amazing And Stegman just screams at him, do I get the fucking gig teacher? So, like, right then was when Perry King was like, well, fuck you then. Like, he just, like, I mean, he jumped, like, maybe he should have made a second attempt later on before (laughs) things got escalated. But I still think Stegman was still going to, you know, try to, like, I, I just think, the control factor was too much for stegman i don't think he would would play yeah. his part in the band i enough.
0: do i do think it's whatever way you look at it, it is a great character beat and i think a lot of lesser writers or filmmakers wouldn't have that in there the right. idea that stegman actually has like this kind of talent and he you know there's the yeah. idea that he maybe could be saved or could be something in the future if he could just get the right person to kind of like crack down on him you know
1: well he he needs to stop being so immature is really what it is and, like, I think that's also kind of a theme a little bit is, like, from A Clockwork Orange. Because, like, A Clockwork Orange, the book, actually has Alex stop doing crimes eventually just because he gets bored with the whole thing. Mm. And I think that's where Stegman needed to go. He needed to get to a point where he just was bored, you know. But, he, but unfortunately, he's still power-tripping on showing uh, adults up at this point, you know.
0: Yeah, and Stegman is definitely influenced by Alex again lester loving that film and like i said alex also of course is like you know actually a genius and everything just that boredom with like regular society has allowed him to fall into this kind of gang lifestyle
1: yeah and here, here's kind of like i mean i don't criticize it because i I think it's still a good you know this is like exploitation movie needs it but this is the only part this this scene reminds me so much of an after school special i saw about pcp with i think helen hunt in it There's -hmm. this... this, I should have looked it up to get the title, but I think it's Helen Hunt in this after-school movie takes PCP and she thinks she can fly and she jumps off the roof of the building. And I was so curious which one came first, this movie or that one. I'm thinking this movie probably came first, but this reminds me of uh, Michael J. Fox, his friend Jimmy, who they don't... I don't even think they say with sporty plays, but for some reason he wants to do Angel Dust because it's going to make him play better in the game later that day. And like he snorts this shit and then... uh, Mr. Norris comes in and sees the drug deal kind of, you know, going on and tries to immediately bust Stagman and all that. But, um, this is the only time, like I said, where it gets a little after-school specialish. And I, I think it was this scene, or at least that's the way they framed it, um, on the documentary or whatever. But the one kind of, like, jock guy of, of the group, his, his wife was having a baby and they wouldn't let him leave. <laughs> so... (laughs) it was a tough day of shooting apparently
0: there's some uh graffiti in the background that has to do with oj simpson
1: i saw that i thought that was bizarre is oj he
0: a black man yeah yeah
1: Yeah, like you kind of they never really go into it like like stegman did use a racial slur earlier when was beating up that black kid but like they never go into it because they're really well
0: they also they do the nazi salute when they introduce themselves to mr norris that they is true the, they do the zig heil yeah
1: yeah and i want to say one of them at some point i think the big guy or maybe i'm wrong but somebody has like a nazi pin or something on their shit but yeah like i think it's subtle the racial tensions at the school but they don't really go into it too much well the
0: and the nazi stuff really is coming off of just um to go back to us talking about the london punk scene yeah. and everything like it was very common for the punks at that time to wear nazi paraphernalia and really it's not a matter of racism necessarily i'm sure some of them were yeah but i think for a lot of them it was just a matter of what can we do to piss off adults yeah yeah
1: shock value but i'm right here mr norris because he has such a boner for catching stigma in his game he doesn't even notice that the jimmy kid is like smacking his face and his face is going numb and shit from these drugs
0: What do you think of, uh, I guess now's a good time to talk about Timothy Van Patten. Um, yeah,
1: I was going to say that um, from a lot of the, the interviews from the actors, they said he wasn't real happy to be doing this, because I guess he played a similar role on a TV show, and that's why they casted him.
0: Yeah, he was on White Shadow.
1: Yeah, White Shadow, and they said um, he was like furthest from the uh, you know, the character, he was a super nice guy, and I guess he wanted to get out, out of acting and get into directing, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Which he did, you know, yeah. he, doesn't, he doesn't stick around in acting very much longer after this. Uh, he had, uh, I think, Master Ninja maybe followed this, the, yeah. the TV show that he was on with Lee Van Cleef for a little bit, but uh, yeah, he's he's gone on to be a pretty prolific TV director, he's directed he a lot of uh, HBO stuff and things like that.
1: Yeah, he started with the uh, HBO era with directing some of the episodes of The Sopranos, mm-hmm. and then he went on to do some Boardwalk Empire, and because of the Boardwalk Empire stuff, he actually did the pilot of the of Game of Thrones. And I don't know if the pilots with, with cable stuff is the same as pilots with network stuff, but I know usually anybody who even just directs just the pilot usually gets a huge payday. And he's still working with HBO and doing other stuff, so he's pretty much one of the most in-demand um, television directors right now. Mm-hmm. Let's take a second to talk about the... Um, Principal character. What do you think of the principal character?
0: He's the stock principal character, right? Yeah. The one who like seems like how did he get this job and just does not want to deal with any actual problems that arise, right? And for some reason, never trusts the teacher who's clearly in the right. <laughs> but... Yeah, I
1: know. Like he just he straddles that line of like, like oh, you have to see them do this. You have to see them, but it's like come on, like we know who's running this school. Like I think a little bit of it. He's hiding behind the rules because he really doesn't want to piss off the gang. You know, like he mm-hmm. doesn't want, like not just the gang, but just any bad students in the school. I don't think he wants the retribution to come back on him the way it comes back on Norris throughout the film. Yeah, and I will say this: one guy that's in the gang who plays the uh, the druggy guy. He's a pretty distinctive looking guy. He actually have you heard? Um, Oh shit! I'm I'm blanking on the movie, um, blah. Frank Lelogia I think it's Hear No Evil or See No Evil. It's a movie I just blind bought on um, Anchor Anchor Bay DVD a long time ago. And the, the druggy guy plays this like anti Christ character in it, who's like in high school, and he's like mm-hmm. he's like a bully nerd and like but he he starts having psychic powers and starts screwing people up and this movie is insane like this is another one we'll have to cover for this show at some point in time because um basically the movie ends with like this antichrist type high school character basically bringing on like a whole graveyard of zombies coming out he he resurrects them to you know with satanic powers to get them to uh to uh you know attack a bunch of people in this new jersey town it was like an independent movie but it's pretty damn uh ambitious
0: i just was... want to quickly go back just a moment because we were talking about timothy Patton being one of the most in demand tv directors he also recently directed the hang the dj episode of black mirror which i know is a very popular episode uh, and one of the more talked about episodes of the recent run so
1: yeah uh hang the dj taken from the smith song right
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that, the name of that movie was Fear No Evil, and that came out the year before this did. So,
0: I, There's a great extra performance here, and by great, I mean terrible. Um, yeah. So we just saw the uh, the, the jock kid, because he was high, he climbed up the flagpole, and every, yeah. the whole school came out to watch him, and he falls to his death. And there's one girl, uh, unfortunately, left in the foreground who just does not react at all. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is, like, screaming and uh, freaking out, as you would if you watched a kid plummet to his death. And she's actually just kind of got this smirk on her face. And I'm actually surprised Lester didn't notice that in editing and kind of yeah. try to work around that a little bit.
1: But... And, like, I watched actually a couple of times that scene. Like, it's really good with, you know, the stunt double and then the close-up of the guy up on the flagpole and stuff. It's actually a well-done scene and stunt for yeah. the way they the shoot The fact that he falls
0: it. holding the flag and ends with the flag wrapped around him, maybe yeah. a little on the nose, but...
1: Yeah, uh, Lester said that was intentional, so. He was really going for his shock value on that one. Here's where we really start getting Michael Fox in the thing, because cause the teacher wants him to like tell who sold the drugs and all that, like, you know, don't you see your friend's dead now and you won't say, just give me the name and that. And obviously, always see the punk uh, uh, gang notices this, so now they'll be putting pressure on Michael Fox as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what I mean, like, um, Norris keeps making mistakes, like, now he just got Fox in, like, more trouble by yes. doing that right in front of them. Yeah. Making everybody else's life harder on them.
1: It's really funny too, seeing the uh interviews and stuff. Um the two girls in this, the one in the punk gang and then the girl who is in the band, the kind of we haven't really talked about, but she kinda is friends with Michael Fox here with the short hair. It's amazing how much these these two ladies look very much the same now. Like they look older, but even the girl with the short hair, she kinda has the same short hair now and she's very distinctive. It looks the same. And uh you know, the punk girl is actually still very good looking, just like she is in this movie. Unfortunately, the, um, the, the kind of big brute guy in the gang, uh, he passed away like years ago, um, at a young age. He just caught a, you know, strange case of brain cancer or what have you. But, uh, as far as I know, everything, everybody else is, you know, doing pretty good from this. I I think him and obviously we all know Roddy McDowell passed away in the nineties, but other than that, I think everybody in this movie is still around. Yeah. Here we go. And I thought this was funny. Like they they harass Michael Fox and uh, this girl, and throw him up against this like abandoned car that's all spray painted. But there's like a ski pole hanging out <laughs> <laughs> the car door. I thought that was funny.
0: So just use the ski pole instead of breaking that bottle. You know, you have a weapon right there at the yeah. ready for you.
1: Yeah i know this bottle stunt was a very um, hard to do they say because for some reason the, the director was very pissed that the prop people they only because they were saying like in canada at this time canada actually wasn't used to doing like movies and people were inexperienced so like you know literally you do you do like a thing like that like you're gonna need multiple you know takes multiple whatever just make sure it goes right whatever and they said they only brought like the only the the crew guy only bought like two or i guess the prop master it would be only bought two fake bottles to break so there was a lot of pressure to like you know would it break the right way and would they be you know be able to use it and all that shit
0: now i'm number one to tell people how to do their business but if i could talk to stegman for a moment tell him how to run this gang I want to point out that the one like jock guy who has like you know he's got like these kind of Python arms for a high schooler yeah. it really looks like probably the probably the toughest member of the gang. Every time they're like threatening someone or in some kind of physical altercation, they just have him being the guard, like yeah. doing watchdog. Dude. He's always look like, out. Should, shouldn't he be the guy that's like roughing up the, your enemies?
1: Well, when they had the gang fight earlier, they went out of their way to show that that guy was the best fighter, and like he was yeah. literally making up for everybody else who was kind of losing their fight. So he would beat up his guy, and then he would move on to help somebody. Because, you know, the druggy guy, he can't do much. And the girl, you know, she's not going to be fighting people.
0: And here again is Norris. Like, he's clearly he's doing the right thing. But he is wrong. Like, you don't have any authority over the kids in an alley, right. you know. So stepping into, like, you know, because they're threatening uh, Michael J. Fox and his friend in the alley. And Norris sees that and steps in. And, I mean, they're, this isn't school grounds. He, has not, he doesn't really have much of a say here.
1: Nah, he doesn't. I I think it goes both ways though. I think the gang is pretty like stupid to think that like, you know, like 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 he can't do anything in this situation. Like I think the smart thing was, at this point, just to play it off and let the kids go. But Mm -hmm. like they really get into it here, and you know, uh, Michael Fox and the girl they kind of run away in the fracas. But they do attack the teachers because Roddy McDowell is with them, and they slash Roddy, the little druggy guy, slash Roddy McDowell with like a straight razor.
0: Yeah, and they punch Norris in the face.
1: Which, that's where I like, I mean, I, I, I could see them like not backing down to them, but I think that was very stupid because now they could easily go to the cops, you know, mm-hmm. like Roddy McDowell's hands all slashed up, it's, you know, Norris got the bottle or something over his head. He's all bleeding too. But it just, it just seems uh, awkward because what are you going to do the next day when you see the teachers at school, you know what <laughs>
0: Now, uh, since we've been talking about punks or anything, let me just ask Goat, because this is a good time for this kind of deviation. You mentioned getting into the, the Sex Pistols. How much of, like, uh, did you have a big punk rock phase when you were younger? Or I feel like, you know, a lot of people have that at some point. But
1: Yeah, I want to say my punk rock phase was really around, it was mostly just getting into bands from soundtracks from movies. I want to say I got into it probably after high school. I'd say probably like around the age of 18 I got mostly into the movie Repo Man just as a movie and then that soundtrack mm-hmm. you know kind of wore off and then I got into Iggy Punk I'm sorry Iggy Pop which then kind of led me to to get into the Sex Pistols. so I, I had a good three-year run and then a lot of people don't know this but the one and only Phil D's Nuts is a huge punk rock fan with a large mm-hmm. punk rock CD collection so I mean and then the Misfits got into the Misfits. So it was really it was a, a triage for me of Viggy Pop then the Sex Pistols and the Misfits. So, I mean, that was a good three, four. And then then eventually, just on my own, I got into Black Flag. So I had a good five-year run of late teens, early 20s, being into punk.
0: Yeah yeah i think for me because like we're not too dissimilar in age but i was of that that right age where you know when i was in high school is when green day and offspring came on the scene and blew up big time and you get into that and then you know you're like yeah this is good punk music right and then somebody will always tell you like well by the way that's not really punk that's pop punk if you want to really hear punk and what they're kind of referencing listen to this and then so as a teen like i kind of was then dove in a little more and i got into the sex pistols and went back and found bands like x and uh you know, even like the kind of more offshoot kind of stuff like television, and yeah, and that's always mind blowing when you realize the first time you realize that punk, how wide ranging punk is, to where Blondie is punk, you know, and I know. Talking Heads, punk and out, yeah. Elvis Costello, and Patti Smith, and so yeah, there's a whole world to discover. But I, I am, I'm constantly, even still today, fascinated by that brief little scene you're talking about the, the, the London punk scene of the, yeah. the time of the Sex Pistols and the Clash. I just find it so interesting and. And just uh, I don't know. Like, I it kind of makes me sad that kids today don't have that kind of rebellious streak to that end. Uh, right. But...
1: Yeah. Now, young kids are. I'd say young kids now are more into just creating their own current thing and their own yeah. current scene. Whereas I think we're people who grew up really in the '90s, uh, like us. I think really there was that thing of like. Getting in the stuff that was current, but also really looking at like where did it come from, you know what I mean? Like, like because when when I went when I went to school, well, when I went to college, I'd say, um, and I didn't go to like a big metropolitan college. I went to you know, pretty you know small college, but I but I'd say there was a good mix of like lots of people who were you know it wasn't just like everybody was just in the hip hop or pop. There was actually a lot of people into punk or heavy metal still you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's just like even though it wasn't really that trendy of a thing to do at the time
0: yeah i do say it's, it's surprising me like one of the things i find most disappointing about millennials and i'm not going to turn into that old guy bitching about millennials but with the state of the world said i'm surprised there hasn't been like more of a punk rock kind of movement to emerge right. from that age range but you know what if their punk rock movement is going to be um, organizing marches in Washington and starting kind of actual political battles. I guess that's pretty punk rock. So
1: it is. And I think a lot of, um, I notice a lot of um, kind of the do it yourself. Who cares if you know how to play your guitar or not. I've noticed that like really rubbed off even in electronic music, like a lot. Um, yeah. Cause, cause even pop music now is very electronic. There's a lot of people making hip hop albums that like, you know, they're really not skilled technically on a musical level, but you can tell they're just, you know, they don't give a shit. They're just doing, you know, to get their thing out there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I, but I do miss traditional punk as well. Just, I don't know, like, like, it just, like I was saying, like, the time period, uh, that I went to college, which at this point now is going on almost 20 years ago. I, I just think like there was the thing of like young people still, like it was cool to be into old stuff. And I don't know what changed, but but I, I it seems like kids are less now into looking in the past as it, as they were, you know, when we were growing up. Because mm-hmm. like you know, like when when I was even in high school, like like kids were talking about old movies like Clockwork Orange and stuff. And I don't, you know, I don't know if that goes on now or not. Yeah, like there was a million music videos even up until the late '90s that were all clockwork orange derivative
0: this probably comes back to something we've talked before about and maybe on this show i'm not sure but the idea that every every subsequent generation has more stuff in the past to look back on so it gets a little tougher you know there's more content vying for your attention yeah which here we get one of the more like gruesome kind of things in the film Uh, So Roddy McDowell is kind of the science teacher of the school, and we saw earlier he has all these like kind of bunnies in the class, uh, these rabbits that he really cares for that are kind of caged up. And now because he got involved in that altercation in the alley, they come to school the next morning to find that the gang has come in and skinned all those rabbits and Mm -hmm. kind of skewered them uh, throughout the classroom, and there's blood all over the walls.
1: Yeah, and they even hung a cat, like literally there's a cat hanging from a noose. But yeah, it's very disturbing, I have to say, even, especially because... You know, this this being a low-budget movie, and this is kind of just what you did at the time. Roger Corman did this a lot, too. They literally just went to a local animal morgue and kind of disfigured the animal bodies. The, you know, the animals were already dead when they got them, of course. But still, they literally made the dead animals props. And people said, obviously, it stunk really bad. And I have to say, uh, Norris plays into Stegman's hand perfectly here. Like he he runs and pushes Stegman, you know, in the bathroom, and everybody runs out, which perfectly leads up what Stegman's going to do next. Mm-hmm. And like it's kind of funny because this is like almost like a cliched scene in movies now, but um, but uh, according to Mark Lester, of course, because he invented everything, um, <laughs> he, said, he said this was actually a lot more of a, you know, a shocking turn to people at the time that Stegman would you know bash his own face into the mirror and on the sink to bloody himself and you know mm-hmm. in order to blame mr norris and i have to say like it's just one of those things it's so coincidental or whatever but it reminds me of a lot of that scene in the uh, fight club when edward norton does the same thing
0: yeah if nothing else stegman had a future as a professional wrestler ahead yeah. of him um, could have could have yeah. gotten to like czw or something
1: i know he could blade himself very <laughs> easily and convincingly <laughs> But I almost think Stangman would have knocked his teeth out doing that shit. But yeah, he he frames him perfectly, and then then he you know when the security guard runs in, he blames the teacher. He attacked me and all this shit, and just yeah. I mean I don't know that's very tough. I don't. I don't know what you know as a school what you do in that situation because it's like you know, I could very easily see um. You know, them them actually believing Stegman or kid-like Stegman at this point, you know?
0: Yeah. We should mention while we were talking about punk rock that we did, we did see that Norris did go to the police. And, of course, we got that other trope of this kind of film, you know, where yeah. the police just are like, nah, nothing we can do, you know, we don't have the proof. But now that same cop is the one who comes to the school to deal with this. And same thing, right? They're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're telling the truth, but yeah sorry, you know, I got to catch him red-handed. Yeah. Because eventually t- we got to get the law going into the, our hero's own hands.
1: <laughs> yeah, because yeah, the law will not do anything. But mm-hmm. also, too, like, really the cop is like, they're juveniles. You can't do anything to juveniles. I mean, I don't know how true that is or not, but there's a big thing in movies and TV shows. They, they can't do anything to a juvenile. They can't do anything at all. But, like, I think I'm pretty sure you can lock juveniles. I mean, they have, oh, yeah. like ju- yeah. juvenile detention centers and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, that was really the card to play in the '80s in TV shows and movies and whatnot.
0: Well, again, it was just that you were this. It's a generation that was so fearful of the youth, you know, and yeah. the, this punk rock movement, um, satanic panic, of course, was a big deal in the '80s. Yeah, so people were just terrified of what their teens were up to.
1: So Trev, I, I gotta ask you because this is one tidbit I, I was not able to find. And here's out, uh,
0: Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, by the way.
1: Is um is why do you think they called this movie Class of 1984 when it came out in 82 do you think 1984 just with the George Orwell thing
0: yeah i think i think it's the i think the 84 was an orwell nod but i also think like i think they view it as a slightly futuristic film right i think lester's just looking slightly ahead to saying like look schools are bad right now but this is how bad it's gonna get if we don't do anything and just put even a couple years i, I kind of like the idea of saying this is the future but it's not the far future this is my, right. what, this might be what's right around the corner from us
1: it's kind of like how escape from new york took place in like 1997 i believe
0: yeah, it's like all these futuristic films, you watch them now and you wish, like, if I ever made a film set in the future, I'd set it in, like, the year, like, 50,000 or something, just so you don't have to yeah. deal with that kind of embarrassment of when you watch these movies. now. Although, I, I, now I love that as a kitschy thing, when all these movies yeah. that predict a future that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, I, I just think, because I, cause I, I, I do remember a little bit the resurgence <laughs> that the George Orwell story had in, in, like, the actual year of 1984. I was very yeah, young. Yeah, well, the movie was released. Yeah, the movie came out. You had the Apple commercial. Like, you know, 1984 was like a big deal all of a sudden, even though it was like a super old book.
0: Well, that's a book that kind of keeps coming back. I mean, it's it's been consistently popular. But also, when Trump became president, it actually went to number one on the bestseller list again. And, really? And stayed there. Yeah, stayed there for a few months because a lot of people were talking about how his administration seemed very Orwellian. So, uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of not come back as much recently but another like book and story that kept coming back a lot throughout the 80s and even the 90s there was even rumors of another remake was i remember fahrenheit 451 kept coming up a lot
0: well there actually is a new fahrenheit 451 coming up later this year starring uh michael shannon and michael b jordan
1: really okay yeah hbo original original. nice
0: it's gonna be it's gonna be an hbo movie but uh it looks pretty good
1: now, here's the only scene in the entire movie where we get the glimpse of Stegman's real home life. Very, co- mm-hmm. I mean, it's an apartment, but it's a very cushy apartment. I do yeah. as far as say a rich person's apartment. Kind So we can see where
0: the piano thing comes from, right? Because yeah. he's a rich kid, and clearly, you know, this is the kind of family that he would have had piano lessons as a kid.
1: Yeah.
0: And you can get, you get the sense that everything he does outside of this is a rebellion against this. But he also is totally playing his mom to where she thinks he's the, the great, you know. Mama's boy, kind of, you know, yeah. kid with no problems.
1: It's kind of, it's, it's really actually disgusting to watch to see how much the mom defends him. You know, I like the intercom game. You know, like the mom walks out of the room and Stegman drops the nice guy act and he starts talking to shit to Norris, who's you know perfect timing by the way that he knew Mr. Norris would be walking by the intercom. <laughs> that yeah, what
0: if be... he just got into a conversation with some other random person?
1: Yeah, that'd be interesting to
0: Then the rest of the movie is just about this random stranger messing with Stegman.
1: This is actually one of my favorite scenes of the movie, but I have to question whether Mr. Norris really knew how to hotwire a car or not. (laughs) Because, like, what do you think? Remember how 80s movies, it was so common to hotwire cars in movies, like anybody could do it, literally? Here we go. In i do
0: like that now like the movie is just entering this realm and I, I i do like films like this that just become about an escalation of like you know two people yeah. just messing with each other and i feel like it's kind of missed in in modern you know well we don't get films of like just that kind of simplicity anymore yeah but just two people who are dead set on screwing each other over and that's kind of obviously gets worse and worse and escalates to like deadly consequences but at this point it's just two people who are just like screw you i'm gonna you know annoy you more or
1: yeah. 'Cause because uh we kinda glossed over it, but uh they did destroy um Mr Norris's car completely. Like they bashed it and put it like a Molotov cocktail in it, so now he's bashing up Stegman's car. I actually I love
0: that I love the detail of him locking the door after he gets out.
1: I know, it's hilarious, even though like the window's down and everything. Well actually the window's broken out, but yeah. It's even an insert shot when he goes and locks it. <laughs> i I really like that kind of opening like uh insert shot or whatever establishing shot of the outside of the school. I don't know why it gets me every time I like it. Here's Stegman very pissed, but um you, you know i the thing that I think's kind of interesting is if Stegman didn't have the gang behind him, I think his ego. Would have dropped enough to where him and Mr. Norris could have kind of got on the same page at some point.
0: I was sort of thinking that when I watched this scene in particular, like this could have been a moment where, again, where Norris could have, when he came in, if I was Norris, could have been like a, you know, almost like a reach out, like, well, we're not so, it's that, we're not so different kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, try, try that on him in that moment. Say, like, yeah, you know, well, we both did the same thing, you know, and see if you can have any kind of connection.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I always wish the security guard. For some reason, Stegman then backs down when the security guard walks in. I guess because he doesn't want to blow his perception that Mr. Norris actually beat him up or something. But yeah. I always wish the guard wouldn't have came in and that scene would have played a little bit longer.
0: Yeah, because what Stegman is doing here is he's just drawing out like the same level of violence out of Norris. You know, this yeah. is one of those kind of pacifist turned violent films that were all the rage at the time. And
1: yeah. this is definitely, uh, I would say, also. Um, you know, as much as a lot of Clark or Orange influence, this is also influenced a lot by straw dogs, I'd say.
0: Yeah, Death Wish.
1: Yeah, Death Wish as well. Now, here we have, they're just clearly trying to, uh, get somebody killed. And I think, I think Michael Fox is also, because Michael Fox stops to talk to the cop and Mr. Norris. And, like, it makes it look like Michael Fox is squealing, but he's really not. He's just, mm-hmm. you know. Like, like, Mr. Norris should have known to, like, hey, you know, kind of beat it, you know, see you later to Michael Fox. And Michael Fox shouldn't have been hanging around there either. Like, he should have known that the gang was going to see that. Because the gang is literally, like, ten feet away watching. And I think here, too, they really, you know, talk about the escalation, how unsafe schools are getting. This is pretty much, like, a scene right out of a prison movie. But it's just in a high school cafeteria. So I think this scene probably you know like we we're saying about other stuff in the movie this scene probably was a lot more shocking at the time when the movie came out
0: and when you make movies like this like you it fulfills a double like uh you know there's a kind of dual audience thing going on where the adults watch it and believe like oh my god this is what's happening with the kids and it's scary and we need to keep in mind and then the kids who are actually living this just find it hilarious right because it's yeah. such such an exaggeration of what high schools are really like
1: so you hear you have the two kind of bullies of the gang they just they start basically a barroom brawl in this cafeteria as a distraction and then they get this new pledge of the gang Vinny Cantillo, to go basically shank michael fox in the side mm-hmm. it's very uh i don't know it's, it's it's very like I will say this is like one of the few moments where the violence like seems kind of real, and I think it's just because Michael Fox like sells it so good. And, yeah. Well,
0: plus we as a we we as moviegoers are trained not to want to see Michael J. Fox get hurt.
1: Oh, Exactly, and I, and <laughs> you I think always that's feel
0: like, protective of him.
1: Yeah, I think he's he's just such a baby face in this movie. Mm-hmm. You can't help but feel for him a little more. Now this is
0: the point where I feel like as a teacher myself, like, you, it's escalated to this point. This is where Norris really needs to start figuring out a way to de-escalate this as quickly as he can.
1: Yeah, you kind of uh, got to be the adult and, you know. Yeah,
0: step in now and say, okay, this has gone too far. And instead, it's just going to go more off the rails, obviously. <laughs> but, yeah. but then again, I don't want him to do that because I want the rest of the movie to be badass, which it is. So
1: Yeah, you want them to. sorry i had to mute myself to sneeze for a second but yeah you you, you kind of want them to you know as much as you, you know you know and that's kind of the duality of this film is the drama side is working good enough where you want there to be a peaceful resolution but at the same time you want your exploitation payoff yeah <laughs> and again like you know this movie you know especially like on this last i'd say really the last two rewatches i really got into it um and it just seems, you know, just like how we talked about the little touches of, like, how Stegman actually did have talent and, you know, some of the things, like, you know, the things with the, the animals, Roddy McDowell, and now this. I think it sells it well Is like, not only do you have this violence escalation with the, the Mr. Norris character, but, Roddy, like, it in very, whatever, three, four scenes, maybe, like, you do get a good, clear, dramatic picture of how Roddy McDowell is melting down throughout this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Here he and he is.
0: has the gravitas to pull it off.
1: Yeah, here, here he is, literally being moved to tears, talking about how he's a failure and he can't teach anymore. And... So
0: I watched uh, the show Riverdale, you know, the kind of CW updated right. noir version of Archie. And uh, I think it was Vulture or some website like that just recently did a really funny article where they did this expose. And it's trying to figure out what temperature is it in Riverdale because the, the clothes uh, that the characters wear are just so inconsistent from scene to scene. They can't they couldn't tell if it was like super warm or super cold there.
1: Mm.
0: And I was just reminded of that with this scene where I was thinking, what temperature is it supposed to be? Because Nor- they're outside having a barbecue outside. Norris is wearing like a light hoodie.
1: Yeah.
0: And... Ryan McDonald's in this, like, super heavy, like, bomber coat. Like, yes. why is he so cold?
1: <laughs> the only thing I can figure out is they are next to, like, a big-ass lake. So maybe the yeah. breeze, you know.
0: His old brittle bones can't take it the way young, a, like, fit yeah. Perry King can.
1: And he used to be coming at this point in the story, he's kind of pouring on the, the booze more and more. So, you know, the blood thins, alcoholics get cold here's a good scene you kind of just see you get more of the joy that perry king has in teaching the group they're preparing for the the competition you know the rehearsing in the auditorium and stuff
0: i will say like you were talking about earlier about how much you like perry king in this and like you know to to if i can get on his nuts for a moment um please do i'm actually surprised he wasn't a bigger star i mean right. really because he's got you know look at him here and even like the beard which was not a you know uh by well beards are back in fashion now I'm not sure what they were like in the early 80s but he's just got like a really good look for film yeah, Like he's he got does. the leading man looks he's got uh, a very he's just got that kind of natural charisma and like ability um, yeah I'm, I'm, I wish I could see like more stuff with him
1: yeah and he did he did work but like yeah like when I see him in this movie I think this is a guy who's really on the rise you know mm-hmm. instead of just kind of being a steady you know kind of I don't want to say middle of the road, but you know, his career, like he worked, but yeah, I'm not
0: now here, of course, is the scene I was talking about the scene that was recently all over the internet, yes. uh, somewhere in a theater in 1982, a young Donald Trump watched this and a lot <laughs> and a, and it stuck with him. And he said, you know what? Someday, I think I, I think there's an idea here because so we see a teacher, uh, armed with a gun, holding his, his students hostage, essentially making them listen to his lecture at gunpoint.
1: Yeah. McDowell. Of course, we've had a
0: lot of recent national talk about the idea of arming teachers, which uh, I'm not going to get off in a big tangent about, but as a teacher, I'll just get my two cents of it's a horrible idea, I believe. And here we have a great example of why, because you never know when that teacher is going to, you know, have a bad day.
1: Exactly. And not only that, but it's just... I mean, not to talk about real-life stuff too much, but I kind of feel like... So it's some of these instances, they have armed security who can't prevent it to, from happening. So mm-hmm. why do you think a teacher is going to be any better? You know what I mean? Yeah. And
0: also, like I said, you don't want a SWAT team running, running in, not knowing who the person is that they're supposed to be, you know, looking for.
1: So I I got to ask you, cause I actually was, um, I actually was wondering about this when I was watching this uh, the other day, you as someone who's teaching, which which, let's be clear, you teach on the collegiate level, so you're not, you know, yeah. in, in the, you know, the day-to-day of teaching, like, really super young students. But, but still, I mean, as a professor, it's, you know, like, does this movie or is this a movie like this, does it mean any more to you now that you have that experience of, you know, being a professor for a few years now?
0: i think it's on a, maybe on a level i don't even think about that often right i'm sure like i said i came to this movie a little later anyways but yeah i certainly think it's true that if i watch this movie as a 17 year old i'd probably have a different point of view of it that i do as someone who's watching it from definitely sympathizing more with the teachers you know and knowing what it's like to deal with problem students and just the stress of that job and i don't want to even say like the like you said i teach on a collegiate level I'm so I'm just a part-time teacher at a, at a university. Uh I don't feel like I'm nearly as stressed as uh public school teachers are.
1: Yeah.
0: Who are who are really, you know, getting the shaft in in that kind of world. But uh but yeah, like I I've, I thankfully I've never had a uh a student like Stegman, you know, oh, or that kind yeah. of that kind of problem. So
1: I was going to say and it was actually was a believe it or not a punk rock student, but when I was in college, I was taking some English courses and uh, it was early on, and in in, uh, I, th- I want to say, like, I had a couple semesters under the Royal School, but there was, like, a like a kid who was, like, le- a legit, like, you know, freshman, like, first semester freshman, and he was a punk rocker, and I talked to him a couple times, and it was an English in English class, and he felt like uh, the teacher got to him on the point where the teacher was berating him in the class because he refused to spell words correctly. Like, he wanted to spell school, S-K-O-O-L, and, like, he just kept doing shit like that to the point where she literally kicked him out of the class like i don't know what the you know what the wrap-up of it was he certainly was a menace as much as stegman but he openly had disdain for the teacher and and i just gotta say on a collegiate level i like why why would anybody do that that's such you're wasting your time you're wasting your money <laughs> you know what
0: i mean well that's actually yeah i like i'm very lenient with kids who want to you know yeah. if they're cri- if they're creating a problem in the class that's distracting of course you'll kick them out or whatever but a student who just wants to do something like that, I just typically leave alone because, as you said, like they're paying to be there and they're paying to get a bad grade. At that point, it's not really my concern. Um, but I would probably handle that a little better. I think like I'd have the advantage of I'd probably just try to bond with that kid and be like, "Oh, you're into punk? Well, what do you think of the Slits? Or, or do you want to talk about the Dead Kennedys? And maybe I could connect to them."
1: Yeah. Here, that you know like,
0: me, I'm, all, I'm the cool teacher You're the, the cool you know? teacher
1: <laughs> Miss uh, Chakrabarty from uh, India Who I loved, I thought she was a great uh, Professor, she's actually one of my favorite professors But uh, I guess she just wasn't having it I guess she yeah. figured she came You know, English was her second language She learned it well enough to teach She was having no punk rock t- <laughs> Rock and roll <laughs> University bullshit in her classroom <laughs> But yeah, this was a great scene where he Roddy McDowell was basically was quizzing the kids at gunpoint, and finally, when a kid, uh, I think it was Stegman, was about to get it wrong, it was a great tension of is he really going to shoot them? Because he asked the other gang kids questions, and they actually got them right, and that was the whole point he was kind of trying to push was they needed the gun to concentrate. And then, you know, right at the moment, you know, he was maybe about to kill Stegman. Norris tried to wrestle the gun away from him and it went off and just shot into the ceiling. But I think I think it's hilarious the rap of that, like afterwards, like the teacher and Norris are like like, oh, we don't know what to do with him. You know, should we call the cops? And the and the principal was like, Oh, all these parents will be after me if I do And like they literally just let him go home for the day.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is he gonna come back the next day? Is that the idea?
1: <laughs> yeah. Like that that's it was just like you know, in real life, obviously, the police would come and a SWAT team and he would be out in handcuffs. And here he is that night proving that he wasn't giving up the ghost. He tries to actually, and and that's a, this is like the only kind of scene I kind of have to call bullshit on in this movie. But he tries to run over the punk gang at the uh, club that they hang out. Of. Like, how does he know where like where the punk gang hangs out? You know what I mean? was actually some great stunt driving according to mark lester roddy really was just trying to run everybody over and they had to run out of the way which i don't know how much of that i believe or don't believe but um uh... also in the same state the scene statement has a jacket that's very much like arnold's punk jacket from the first half of the terminator i don't know if you picked up on that trev
0: uh, Now you say it
1: yeah very similar i would have to look at the terminator again to see if that jacket had the exact same studs that this one does, but it looks very same. similar. Rodney Mcdowell flipped his car over, and then it blew up. He died trying to kill the gang.
0: I definitely remember going to that record store that was kind of in the background there. The uh, the A and A Records. Yeah, like that's I definitely like the... remember going in there when I was there at Young Street. And actually, um, just like a little down the street from that one, which you never, I don't think you ever get a shot of it in this film, but it was another really famous record store called Sam the Record Man. Um, on the same street there, and they were kind of always competing against each other in Toronto, but they were both these awesome, just gigantic record stores.
1: Yeah, talk about something really missing out of our culture. and you think it would come back to some degree with vinyl. I well, a depends. It,
0: I think it all again. I think it depends on where you are. Like I, I live by a couple of communities that are kind of more hipstery, and there are definitely some cool indie record stores, uh, kind of thriving a little bit right now. But, but yeah, not the like the chain ones for sure. We haven't seen come back in a big way.
1: Yeah. Do you remember? Are you young enough to remember this? Where stores would be like, like I'd say, all the way up until the early '90s. Even though they carried CDs as well, there'd be, like, a lot of uh, stores that would be called, like, blank and blanks, records, and tapes. <laughs> you remember that?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, like, just the kind, of, the kind of more standard indie ones.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the smaller ones. The the really major chain that I remember when I was a kid, and they had huge stores, you know, both with CDs, tapes, and records even, like, up until, like, a, you know, pretty much along... Time was uh we had a chain near us in Ohio called Coconuts. Did you have coconuts where you lived, Trev?
0: I did not have coconuts. Coconuts.
1: I think that's my only criticism of this movie was I think Roddy McDowell could've kind of and I understand they're trying to up the stakes, but I think Roddy McDowell could have just exited the movie after that classroom thing. I don't think we really need it, you know, that that whatever. Revenge beat or whatever When he's trying to kill the gang or whatever
0: But then we wouldn't have the The stunt of the car
1: I know That's kind of why the whole reason why it exists
0: (laughs) Exploitation films need a moment like that
1: They do Here we go We're getting back to Michael Fox in the hospital You know he's still You know he's been in rough shape He's still in the hospital I can't remember if it was his kidney or what Got, Got uh punctured by that knife.
0: It must have been something like that because otherwise I don't see why it would still be there.
1: Yeah. But he won't make it in time. I think this is pretty much his last scene in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he, he can't get out of the hospital in time for the big uh, band recital. But he does a good scene. I remember um, he was asking, uh, according to the, the girl that plays his friend in the movie, he asked her if uh, she could get like cash his check for him or cover for him because he couldn't cash the check right away. And she said she couldn't because she didn't have enough money in her bank account. So Michael Fox was really talking about living paycheck to paycheck. He couldn't even cash his paycheck at this time. Which is kind of the story that uh, Tommy Wiseau uses in the room, right? He says he has out of state check or something he can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> he finally gives up the name of the guy who stabbed him. He wouldn't give them up for the drugs earlier, but I guess after getting stabbed, he said enough. Which then leads to even more frustration. Here they go. To the, like half the gangs wearing Nazi symbols now, swastika. Mm-hmm. But. uh... Yeah, now the gang is just in and out of the police station. You know they can't can't do anything to them. And I think that was probably the point of why they wanted a flunky like Vinny Cantillo in the same, first place, just to be the fall guy for them.
0: This cop even kind of reminds me of the cop from Death Wish. You know, he does the one that ends up teaming up with them in Death Wish too.
1: Yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. He kind of—I mean, he don't have like the weird voice or anything. But he he kind of he kind of reminds me of the weird cop that sometimes M.M. Uh, at M. 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 Walsh would play in like the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Have, like, well, he definitely game. has
0: the M.M. at Walsh haircut. Going. Yeah,
1: he does. With the sideburns and the mm-hmm. weird little floppy old man haircut. It's a lot of uh, economical scenes in and out. People going. A couple lines of dialogue getting out just to drive the plot forward. Mm-hmm. It seems like Mr. Norris is always coming and going where the gang is, too. You notice that? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, it was just kind of kismet, right? This is just yeah. fate that these would be, like, kind of destined to go up against each other.
1: Yeah. Now, I don't think we really talked about her at all. This woman that plays Mr. Norris's wife, she kind of had double duty on this film, not only playing the wife, who, uh, you know, later on has something really horrific happen to her, but she actually was, like, the executive producer and was responsible for bringing a lot of funding to the movie. Which I thought was interesting because it's like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, she was an actress as well, but like, you help you help line up the financing for the movie. Now you're going to play a part in the movie. Hmm, what part do you want to play? I wouldn't think it would want to be this part.
0: Well, maybe it was more. Maybe it was that she didn't want to put like another actress through that,
1: you know, oh, or maybe they couldn't that.
0: they couldn't find an actress to do it. So she said, okay, I'll I'll play that part. But...
1: That could be. I never thought of it that way. If only uh, Stegman and his gang uh, could have you could you could write in like a whole weekend kind of side story of Stegman and the gang ended up at the dead end driving crossover yeah class We're, of dead end driving class of the dead end
0: driving at this point like Stegman and his gang have pretty much won so the fact that they're yeah. like still like pestering him this much just kind of surprises me like know when to cut your loss and you know get out
1: yeah. Yeah, and that just is. Here we have some my along about life is pain, pain is everything. You you will learn to the teacher, and just how we were talking to uh, about Perry King, you know, this looking like this could have been like a star turn or whatever. I'd like I'd say the thing with the uh, for Tim Van Patten and, Pat and Stegman, kind of surprised he didn't get some more roles and whatever.
0: Mm-hmm well but if he didn't want to play this kind of role maybe I i wouldn't be surprised if after this he was offered a lot more parts like this right. and it's probably like no that's not what you want to get stereotyped as
1: and you know there's that thing too like a lot of actors you know some actors just ride the kind of B movie train as long as they can and others just rather give up than be stuck in it forever you know
0: mm-hmm. Now here we come to obviously the ugliest scene in the film, yeah. but no surprise to fans of exploitation cinema as this was kind of just the standard right. uh, in this genre at the time. Of course, we're discussing the rape scene. Yeah,
1: and I gotta be honest, like I don't, I don't mean to sound like a pussy here, but like whenever I'm like borderline on the fence about whether I want to sit down and watch this movie. Like, th- this scene always comes to my mind. Like, I always kind of wish that the, it didn't have to go to this level. Because they already killed his friend, you know, Roddy McDowell. I mean, they didn't really kill him. But, you know, it was all the upmanship and the the mania going on. And, like, this always feels like this is, like, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think the film had to go to this level? It, and on top of it... I don't,
0: know. I mean, I don't think most films that go to this level have to. Uh, I, I understand exploitation. And I'm not... I have an odd relationship with this kind of thing, right? Because I love a lot of exploitation films that deal with this as subject matter. Uh, At the same point, I'm completely sympathetic for people who just don't want films to ever go here or don't want to see it. And and even I've grown more uncomfortable with it as I've gotten older. You know, I'm sure you have this, too, where when I was younger and just got into exploitation film – I didn't bat an eye and didn't think twice about scenes yep. like that. Films so was just like, oh, of course that's what the bad guys do because then you want to see the bad guys get punished. And now, it, now I see it as like how lazy it is, right? That right. it's just such an easy way to make them seem more reprehensible. And uh, and it always is. I don't know the the female characters who it's happening to are usually not given a lot of. They're pretty f- thinly drawn, other than to be the victim of this. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I don't think the movie needed to go here. Um, it's I think you could have. I feel like just the death of Ronnie McDowell or something else could have been the the escalating point, or maybe like another another attack on another student or something. But
1: because because yeah. really like the inciting thing, and by the way, and another reason why it kind of bothers me, and I agree completely. Like when I was a kid and I didn't really know what rape was, I would see it in movies and not think really anything of it. You know what I mean? But then when you when you get older and you and you start hearing like the context of the real life of how it's a traumatic event that affects people for the rest of their lives most of the time like then it's kind of just weird how it's so offhandedly put into movies but also too like this movie goes out of your way and this why kind of double bothers me in this movie is like this movie goes out of its way to let you know this woman is pregnant like a couple months pregnant yeah. so it's like then on top of it, well it's and
0: off. the movie also kind of commits the the to me kind of sin of the of using that kind of thing as shock value of if you are going to put that into a film you really got to explore what that means you know so like in a film like irreversible or l which is kind of about you know this this horrible event and the fallout of it okay i can kind of go with you on it but the problem here is that he never even has another he never has a scene with his wife after this right they just kind of come to the school and tell him something bad has happened and that's kind of it you know and I don't know i just feel like they're if you're if you're not going to push it all the way on the storytelling level then it's just lazy and doesn't need to be there
1: well yeah like basically during the rape the female of the gang and that was another kind of level of sadisticness is it seems like the female is just sitting there like laughing and taking pictures with a polaroid camera but they use the picture you know as a way to bait uh mr norris out of the recital to go chase him but but really that's what the reason why i say it's not so necessary is like it's really just the fact that they have his wife hostage mm-hmm. and he knows like how far they're willing to go already you know what i mean like just her being hostage i mean like you could have her get punched to get roughed mm-hmm. up whatever and i feel like that would have been a, like literally enough to make him run out of there to be like you know i have to like literally save my wife you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like that's why i'm kind of just like the whole and thankfully it's like you know it's it's not super short and it's not it's actually not even super graphic it's just kind of the way the gang is acting is very disturbing but um but yeah it's just i don't i I don't know if they needed to take the level
0: I'd say it's probably taken that level simply because, again, I think it's Lester indulging in his love of Clockwork Orange. And, you know, it's that's what the gang's doing that. And I mean, even to the point where in that scene, we suddenly see, you know, now the the poster art we talked about, this is where it comes from, because there's an escalation in how outlandish their costumes are. And while they're uh, raping her, the other gang members are putting on kind of like war paint and stuff. And so now they do look like this kind of more futuristic gang suddenly, uh, obviously, because they need to look cool for the climax. But it's also definitely wearing the, the clockwork orange influence on its, you know, shoulder a little bit more, or on its sleeve a little bit more here.
1: Yeah, and the f- the female, the girl in the gang, um, she actually, this is like her even wearing her most stylish, kind of mm-hmm. leatherized outfit in the movie, so yeah. The guys are kind of wearing the same old shit that they wear, but...
0: But they've like paid themselves up. And... Yeah,
1: they have like, it's really like the adamant, like... <laughs> <laughs> Mad Max face paint kind of going on. <laughs> and I, th- I, th- I thought, uh, you know, from an atmosphere level, once they kind of go into the bowels of the school here, where it's a lot of shadows and, you know, just streams of light coming in here and there, I thought all this played really great for, like, uh, you know, how low budget the movie was and whatnot. I thought the cinematography really came through. Like, the whole movie shot pretty well, but I thought this stuff kind of popped... It had more atmosphere than even the rest of the movie.
0: Yeah. Now, what do you think is their end game here? Like, is their intention to kill Norris and then do what with the wife? You know, like, that's...
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the wife is bait to get him somewhere, you know. And, like, they never really go into it. But, I mean, I'm assuming because they picked this time, you know, um, I, I think it's just double to fuck up that recital as well. But, but yeah, like, I think definitely, I mean, they're definitely toying with them. but, like, obviously what they did with the wife and, like, what they're doing, even what they're just doing to him now, like, there, there couldn't have been any aftermath of that, like, they would have had to literally kill both of them, you know, or literally, like, they all would have, you know, pretty much the whole gang would have went to jail, like, I don't care if they're juveniles or not, like, there definitely would have been consequences to this. Whereas like before, like they burned up his car, but it's like you can't really prove it. Whereas you know this is like, you can prove it to the point that they even took a picture of what they did to his mm-hmm. wife. You know,
0: and gave him the picture. He gave
1: him the picture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
0: not not the smartest gang. <laughs> no.
1: But clearly the uh, you know the outrageousness, the ballsiness of the gang.
0: Well, here he is entering the uh, the Dario Argento gymnasium.
1: Yeah. This is where you uh, practice um, basketball in the uh, Suspiria-type witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought this was some great uh, set piece here with the uh, gang guys swinging down the gym ropes, you know. It's kind of got like a swashbuckling edge to it. And see, like, all of this really plays, I don't know, kind of actioning over the top. And that's why, you know, like compared to where something like Death Wish, which is just met with, like, brutal violence after all the raping and stuff, this this kind of has a little more fisticuffs and fun and play to it. You know what I mean?
0: So this is Death Wish 2.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. But, you know, one thing I will say about this movie is um I totally, when I watch this, even though these kids are older, I mean, they're clearly not high school age, they're clearly in their 20s and whatnot, I, I still felt like Mr. Norris probably could have beat the crap out of all of them. Just Oh, yeah. You know, he's, he's a good enough size, he's a good enough build, I mean, he's not, like, super buffed out or anything, but...
0: Maybe the, the, the tough one, like the, the built yeah. one, like, was that a challenge?
1: Yeah, because yeah. that dude, like, they do set him up like he knows how to fight more. But, it, like, one-on-one with Stagman, I always thought Mr. He's Norris- got
0: that, like, A.C. Slater thing going on where you're like, I don't remember high school kids ever being that jacked.
1: Yeah, like, I don't remember anybody having, like, clearly defined biceps like that in high school. Hey,
0: that's a doubled-up shot. They used that same shot earlier of the, the girl coming out and lifting her skirt. Oh,
1: yeah? hmm Oh, Yeah. such a shame uh. and I think it's funny that like <laughs> Mr. Norris is literally fighting for his life in the bowels of the school and we cut back to the recital cause like we need to know what's going on with this recital yeah
0: it's an odd thing right where yeah. the movie thinks like this is like an important plot that needs to be resolved for us
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they almost should have like built it to where like that was like the competition and like <laughs> it was literally like are we gonna win it with this performance? I guess I guess they just wanted to tie it in with the payoff that's at the very end of the movie, but still. It it, it, it it's it's very tonally jarring when you watch it and it cuts back to this. Here we go. The uh, the girl, uh, Michael J. Fox's friend, is now going to be the guest conductor.
0: Another film that's very much in this vein that this one reminds me of is uh, another favorite of mine, uh, which also deals with the ugliness of, of rape, but then goes into this kind of crazy high school gang warfare kind of elements, It's uh, Savage Streets.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, not that it makes it any better, but at least that movie has a little more of a cartoony quality to it, mm-hmm. like with the with Lillene Quigley aftermath of everything going on. No, it's here you have Mr. Norris picking up like a little tiny crowbar or something, but I have to say, even though I've seen this movie many times and I know the outcome, I'm always like every time I see it there's almost like how far is Mr. Norris really willing to go at this point? Like you don't really know for sure at this point, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you say you, Well
0: this I mean this always works. I mean I'm I'm always a sucker for watching an ordinary man push to this point.
1: Yeah. And you know th- that's what I say. Like you know, especially in this age of kind of, um, you know, a lot of movies are either about literally superheroes or just about people who are like really, you know, extraordinary in one way or another. Kind of think we miss in the you know we should do more of these like everyday people pushed to like yeah. the brink of sanity type movies because.
0: Well, I mean, they can't even make a Die Hard movie anymore without McLean getting like hit by a van and just standing <laughs> right up. So. Yeah,
1: I know. I know. That's what I mean, everybody's just too uh, invincible in these movies now, you know what I mean? I find this interesting. I mean, I guess you're supposed to think it's maybe darker than what it looks like. But he, (laughs) he literally throws this wrench over in the corner so the punk will go chase after it. But like, wouldn't the punk have seen the direction from which the wrench like went flying? Like, it clearly. Yeah,
0: I mean, I don't think there's a there's a moment in Class of 1999 that's like an even worse offender of that, where a character walks into a room and doesn't see another character. When it, the, even the way it's framed, it's so clear that they should be in their field of vision. So.
1: Yeah.
0: I think just sometimes they're willing to cheat that a little bit. Yeah. But here we get like so this moment when the first time I saw it, like I didn't know because at this point you kind of have a sense of what the film is, and I didn't know the film was going to go like. This kind of graphic, right. you
1: know. Yeah, it's it's really like, um like we said, like you don't know how well you don't know how far Mr. Norris is going to go, but you also really don't know how far this movie is going to go. Mm-hmm. You know, from you know a gore level, a budget level, you know, it's it's. I mean, you can tell it's fake, but it's a pretty good effect here. You know. Yeah. No. So yeah, so they fight over the uh I guess the table circular saw there. And first uh he cuts the he's fighting the kind of buffed up kind of jock guy of the gang. He's probably the best fighter. So they fight and they get on this table saw, which first he cuts the guy's Mr. Norris cuts his arm off and then eventually he just throws his back onto it, which, you know, slices him all up. <laughs> So, now, if
0: I'm Norris, I'm feeling pretty good at this point because my first one-on-one fight was against that guy, and I won. Exactly. Now I feel like, you know, the rest should be easy going at this point.
1: Oh yeah, you could just snap that girl's neck compared to this guy. <laughs> and the druggy guy, I mean, he's yeah, he's gonna have a knife or something, but I mean, shit, he's he's nothing to be afraid of.
0: Yeah, I mean, I we can, I can take that guy, and I'm nothing special.
1: Yeah the the bigger guy just cuz he's such a large guy, he could put his weight on you and push you around. You 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 have to get the drop on him a little bit, but he's not like super tough or anything. Mm. Yeah. I I I will say one thing is I w- like what do you think about this Trev? because I'm kind of, you know, um, Stegman still has the wife hostage somewhere else, but the other members of the gang come in and see that other guy dead. They actually do have a legit, genuine, emotional response to the guy being dead. Like, that kind of surprised me. Like, I almost thought they would be, like, more cold and non-caring. Well,
0: I think, like, I think that's a nice, you know, for whatever you might say about how crazy the movie is and the exploitation thing, I think I always think that's a nice character beat, and I I like, I I always respect when films do that, when they say, like, you know, bad guys might be bad guys, but they probably still like each other, right. you know, and of course they're going to care when one of them is, is off because this is their friend who they spend every <laughs> moment of their waking life with.
1: Yeah. And they really get pissed off, you know, like, we're going to get you now, Mr. Norris, but I mean, if Mr. Norris could do that, they should be a little more careful here.
0: Yeah, definitely not split up like they just did.
1: Yeah, like Mr. Norris, now he gassed, he, he uh, doused the floor of the, the auto shop at the school Um, with gasoline, he's got a blowtorch. He's about to light it up on the junkie guy standing right in the middle of the gasoline. I felt this was interesting because the the junkie guy kind of waits for the flames to get there, don't he?
0: Yeah, well, that's the right guy to pull that trap on. He doesn't know any better. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but I mean, I guess in a way or whatever... I just think it was probably in real life, it probably would catch quicker than whatever they were really, because I don't think they were really using gasoline. They're probably using something else that burns. I thought this was actually a good, simple effect for when they show him all burned up. Like mm-hmm. his skin and stuff is pretty gnarly. Like it's not quite Freddy Krueger level, but it's pretty crispy. Here finally Mr. Norris has to fight that big heavy set guy. And, and I'll give him credit, like he's he's got a big wrench and he's bashing the shit out of that guy and like that guy don't give a shit at all. He actually does have that uh fat guy, uh you know invincibility going on.
0: Yeah, this is so cathartic, though, right? This movie does do a great yeah. job of escalating to the point of, like, where this... I mean, it's horrible violence that you shouldn't be celebrating, but that's what these exploitation revenge films were great at. Like, you want to see this so bad, and it just feels... Watching Norris just beat the crap out of him with a wrench just feels, like, yeah. so cathartic.
1: Now, the girl jumps in a car to try to run Mr. Norris over, but not only does she... Uh, hit this other car that's up on these, like, giant, you know, it's raised up off the ground, which falls and kills the heavyset guy. But she kind of runs him over, then she gets Mm -hmm. squashed, too. So she's she's pretty much dying in the car, too. But, um, Mr. Norris. Norris
0: doesn't help by reaching in and violently jamming her neck over.
1: Yeah, I know. He doesn't give a shit. Although she does give up the location, and I always wonder if, like, you know, she, she tells him that uh, Stegman has his wife up on the roof. And I always wonder how much of that was like the plan and just like leading Norris into maybe a trap or how much she just realized in her dying moments that like this wasn't worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really I really like the, the dynamic of them adding a female into the group. I wish it, you know, for whatever reason could have been fleshed out a little more like her character a little bit but i guess there was what five people in the gang you know we barely got any one-on-one time with stegman so
0: maybe when lester makes class of 29.99 hello uh, yeah flesh out a bit
1: yeah i have to say he uh he was teasing some of the whatevers for you know the third film that he's gonna make I guess we'll go into it. There was class in 1999, which was a completely different premise. It was very, even more futuristic and sci fi. That's the sequel. Then there was a class in 1999, too, which was really just. It wasn't. I mean, I guess it's an official sequel, but it's just really kind of bullshit. And now he's trying to work on what should be like his third film in the trilogy, because he didn't make this one in class in 1999. And he says the new one's going to take place in a private school. Which I don't know. According to him, that's the only way he could tell the story now because the private school will be willing to cover up crimes or what have you. But I don't even know if I really believe that that much.
0: I feel like I actually, I feel like honestly, with everything that's been happening with school shootings and like the response to it, and Trump talking about arming the teachers, I just feel like now would be a good time to revisit like this kind of territory. Right. And I actually feel like Lester could probably get that made at this point because yeah, of how relevant that seems.
1: So here we finally have the catharsis of you know. He, he stagman did slash the wife across the chest but now we have the catharsis of uh mr Norris just literally just beating the shit out so, and Stegman really wasn't he didn't put up much of a fight he got his ass whipped there which is great but now he's hanging he, like he fell through a skylight now he's hanging for his life and this was like they had to like reshoot this just a little bit and trim it up yeah yeah you heard about that trev
0: yeah, so originally, right, wasn't it just that Stegman fell, and they wanted the yeah. the audience wanted like Norris to actually be the one who kind of gets the the killing blow on him?
1: Yeah, well, originally Stegman literally like let himself go, to, as like a fuck you to Mr. Norris to be like I'll kill myself, like you know, but they're saying no, like the you know the, the distributors or whoever were like no, Mr. Norris has to do it, so they filmed this one little shot where he kind of punches towards the camera mean that you know he literally made Stegman fall which i, I actually do think that was the right move because yeah. you know like all the torment that the gang does and Stegman falls and somehow these like ropes got wrapped around his neck so he literally gets hung in, t- in front of the entire school and it's a great stunt i don't know who really did it it doesn't look like a dummy but uh van patten then we get a shot of him like with his eyes disturbingly kind of open still almost like he's kind of winking I think it's a good wrap-up. And, and I think you do even more than others. I think even more than Straw Dogs. Like, Straw Dogs is a very good movie, but I don't really feel the catharsis at the end. Here we have the, uh, the after says Andy Norris was not prosecuted because the police could not find anyone who actually saw it happen, which is like a play on like what the police were always telling him. Well, if yeah. nobody sees it happen... Which I think that's just bizarre. I mean, <laughs> you're right.
0: yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I, that last credit, that last text is really, really strange. Like, why yeah. it needs to be there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know.
0: I thought it'd be even funnier if, like, um, to me, I think the the better ending would have been cutting to, like, the next day or, like, the next week, and everyone's back in music class and they're sitting there waiting, and he walks in just all bandaged up and everything, and he's just like, whew, that was something, huh? All right, let's get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, the...
1: <laughs> I think that actually would be a good ending. Yeah. Like like you come back to school and like the kids are all whatever, and maybe even Michael J. Fox is returning to school and he's like, oh, you know, joking around, like, hey, you know, I'm okay and shit. But like, yeah, and then Mr. Norris comes in. Because there really is that element of like a good teacher coming to a shitty school, trying, you know, that that got so like with all the dangerous minds and the stand in the livers and like all those mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of cliche
0: the Principle, another one of my favorites. Yeah, The
1: Principle. You know, I thought that a lot last time I was watching this. I was really like, how much was The Principle really modeled after this?
0: I'm pretty sure I watched an interview with Lester where he flat out called it like a ripoff. Really? Yeah.
1: You know, because you just never know. There's, there's. I mean, obviously, a lot of these ideas are similar and whatnot. You don't, you don't know people who made this movie. Did they see this other one or not? But, yeah, I was thinking that a lot when I was watching this. But yeah, class of nineteen eighty four. Should we tease the sequel a little bit?
0: I think so. So our idea for doing this was to do a kind of a, a you know like a double feature kind of idea. So we're going to also tackle the sequel, which um, as you already alluded to, is um, quite different. I mean, it's different. a it's a it's a thematic sequel, I guess. Um, yeah. Lester certainly calls it a sequel, but I think they're definitely just two standalone films. Um, it even changes the idea of who's the sympathetic, you know, like character in the in terms of its. This time, you're rooting for the students against the teachers, uh, for reasons I guess we don't need to spoil it yet. But it's definitely takes it in a more sci-fi bent.
1: Very sci-fi, very. Like we said, it would be very easy for, you know, maybe even somebody who saw both movies over the years and just you know be very easy for you not to even know that it's a sequel to this one. So, I mean, like I see a lot of podcasts like they do like a series of films back to back to back and then they talk about how like all our downloads went in the shitter or whatever so i'm not really worried about that in this case because these are very different films it's not Mm -hmm. you know and like i think but like this this movie like whereas i think we're going to be talking you know a lot about with class of 99 it's great because it's so over the top and fun and just like a blast Mm -hmm. i i think this movie every time i watch it it kind of um surprises me, you know, how, how well the drama works for it. And I think a lot of that, like we said, had to do with, uh, you know, the teacher character. And obviously, yeah, Stagman no, was good, too. He brought it to life.
0: It is really good. I mean, it's a, it's a great, like, kind of exploitation version of Blackboard Jungle. It's got yeah. all those elements. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Like, the drama works. The action works. The performances are fun. Um, it's not to say... I always... I feel like I say this for every movie we watch. where I say I wish it was, like, a bigger deal than it is. Yeah. And actually... I don't feel like this one is that underappreciated. I definitely think this does have a pretty decent cult following, but I'm surprised it isn't just a little bit larger and it, it feels like something that could be a little bit more revisited.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, unlike some things which are very, you know, clearly somebody, you know, knew that this had a little bit of a cachet to it because it was released on DVD about 10 years ago in a special edition and then they did an even bigger special edition for, I guess, Scream Factory about two years ago. I want to say. Mm-hmm. It came out. Yep. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely appreciated to some degree, but yeah, like we said, you know, I don't know. I guess, I guess that's what really this show is about though, is by saying, you know, Hey, we remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's it pretty much. Um, I know there's a lot of upheaval and stuff in the world of the X-Men, and you actually do an X-Men podcast right now. Well, you've Mm. been doing it for years, but uh, you want to throw out there to the listeners uh, what's been going on on days of future podcasts examining the X-Men recently?
0: Uh, Recently, we just did our big uh, March Mutant Madness episode where we kind of pitted, uh, we replicated the March Madness idea of pitted 64 different uh, X-Men characters against each other in a randomly chosen randomly the matchups are randomly selected uh to determine the you know the greatest x-men character with some different criteria uh that was a really fun one a double sized episode um and coming up we'll be discussing the the recent deadpool 2 trailer um talking about all the upheaval in terms of fox seemingly not knowing what the hell they're doing with the future x-men movies and of course right around the corner we've got deadpool 2 and we will be of course reviewing that uh giving all our thoughts on that film
1: so a lot of shit going on right now in the world of X Men. Maybe a little too active, I'd say.
0: Well, too active if I mean, unless it, yeah, unless you love bad news. Yeah, know, exactly.
1: But, That's yeah. What I'm but you know, th- thankfully here on the graveyard, we we can pick and choose our battles. We don't we don't we don't have to you know take any bad news. We can just you know <laughs> comfort ourselves with our nostalgia for these movies. So anyway, this is definitely a uh a movie i love i did a long review of it on Vomit with Corey. i did a review of it of the dvd version for hillbilly dvd reviews youtube channel and now finally i got to sit down and do a full commentary on it so i want to say thank you for uh kind of bringing this suggestion to the table trev and uh i'm sure the next time around you know we'll be doing class of 99 and i'm really interested in uh that's actually a movie I've it a bunch of times. I want to say, I know at least two times, maybe a third time. And, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a movie for the ages, so to speak. Like, yeah. I, it, it, In my mind, in some ways, I think it, it it belongs in that elite class of films like Evil Dead 2, wouldn't you say?
0: I do. Like, I, like, I'm sure I'll say this again when we do the episode, but if you want me to tease, like, the episode for anyone who, you know, doesn't really know Class 99, maybe as much as this one is wondering why to bother... Going and tracking it down before they listen to us or whatever. It's it's a film that I just recently was introduced to. Um, just always just you know, I I was aware of it, but I just never sat down and watched it. And it really was one of those cases where you sit down and watch something, and while you're watching it, you realize like, oh my god, I'm watching one of these movies, it's like one of my all-time favorites now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say it's like one of the best movies i ever seen, but like you said, it's just it's one of those movies where like if you have a certain kind of mindset and if you're in a certain kind of film, everything about it is kind of perfect right like it's it's just such it's just such a blast and uh i intend to spend the rest of my days introducing it to as many people as possible and saying well if you haven't seen this you you need to um it's a it's a it's it's a great b movie in a way that like i mean i think it's more fun than the class of 84 although 84 is definitely the better film but uh but they they do make a cool one-two punch especially because they're so different
1: and they're actually like it's that thing of like you could actually watch these films back to back as a double feature with your buddies on a Friday night. And it's really not going to seem that repetitive because, like we no. said, it goes off in a different direction.
0: It's actually a perfect double feature because, you know, the thing about double features is usually the second movie people kind of pay a little less attention to, anyways. Yeah. And so, Class of 84, which has the more dramatic story in which you want the attention, that's where people are going to be. And then 99 yeah. is just batshit insane and ends the night on a high because it's just so ridiculous and it definitely will pull the people in and i I can't imagine not you know cheering by the end with a the climax of
1: 99 exactly and i don't know why because i've done a few reviews on youtube and some things where i've actually been contacted or had it retweeted or or you know whatever by people involved with these movies i have a weird sneaking suspicion that us covering this in 99 I have a feeling we you know, we might uh be getting some correspondence from uh, Mr. Mark L. Lester. I think he's out there <laughs> really taking the pulse, getting ready, so Mark yeah. Lester, if you want to email us, email us at 1980smoviegraveyard at gmail.com, and we'd be more than happy to read your comments on uh, you know a future episode or whatever.
0: Yeah, and I'll just come in and say then, uh, we, we love you. I mean, Yeah, like, we love you. No, we well, want I, you to I make love, more. I love this movie. 99 is now one of my favorites, so yeah. I love Commando
1: sure. as well. I just yeah. bought Firestarter on uh, Blu-ray a couple weeks ago. I was watching all those special features, so yeah. You know, Armin Dangerous. Yeah, mm-hmm. Armin Dangerous. I, I still remember seeing Armin Dangerous in the theater. So we I mean we definitely appreciate your film So yeah, mm-hmm. Marco Lester, please keep them coming.
0: Heck, I've even got a little soft spot for a Pterodactyl starring Coolio.
1: I haven't seen that one. Um, I'll have to track that down to complete my Mark L. Lester filmography experience. No,
0: that's not going to complete it. He's got a lot of movies.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. but... <laughs> so, yeah. So, everybody, thanks again for, you know, going down memory lane for uh, with us. And, uh, you know, just really taking a look back at this futuristic shock value film that, you know, in the rear view still has a lot to be appreciated about it. Trev, I want to thank you again for uh, obviously being a grave digger here and also bringing, mm-hmm. you know the class of series to the table. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. And we'll be seeing you soon in the night. Well, I was going to say the 1980s movie graveyard, but it's just (laughs) the movie graveyard. Yeah. All right. Later.